All right. Now I feel ready to face the week, now that we've recentered ourselves on the Word and where we're supposed to focus our attention. Now let's get into the Word and let the Holy Spirit speak to us through the truth of the Scripture. Matthew 15, 29 is where we will be. We're going verse by verse, line by line, through the Gospel of Matthew, and here's where we find ourselves this morning. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. Now there are significant things going on in the context to that verse, and we miss some of it in Matthew's telling that Mark tells us in his parallel account. We have these parallel accounts across the gospels. They don't contradict each other, they do complement each other, and they reflect different angles of stories. They record some different additional facts in different tellings that help us to get sometimes a fuller picture of what actually happened. Well, what we saw last week is that Jesus had been mainly in the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, where he had encountered a Canaanite woman, and he healed her, cast a, healed her daughter, cast a demon out of her daughter, and then commended this Gentile woman's great faith in front of an, a, a Jewish audience, which would have caused a fair stir. And then when we left there, Matthew tells us that he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, which sounds all rather pleasant, but Mark tells us specifically which side of the Sea of Galilee he walked on, and it actually changes everything about the story today. You see, Mark tells us that the side of the Sea of Galilee that he walked on was in a region known as the Decapolis, a 10-city stretch on the southeastern shore of the sea, inhabited again mainly, though not exclusively, by Gentiles. And listen, this is gonna help you, there were not just any Gentiles, there were some of the worst sorts of Gentiles in the eyes of the Jews of that day. You see, this was a region of historic conflict. It was a strategic Greek colonial outpost. And so as the Greek empire had expanded across the world, they built some of these buffer zones, little outposts that they would put against people that they found barbaric and hostile. And so they would put these buffer zones of Greek civilization up against them so that they could ultimately suppress those civilizations with Greek culture and then bring them back into the empire in a way that was no longer a threat to them, right? Colonialism's not a new idea. Uh, this was something that's been happening for millennia. And this is what they did with the Decapolis. Uh, they found the Jews absolutely barbaric, particularly in their religious practices, and they opposed them in every way. And so they put this Greek settlement along the shore of the Sea of Galilee so that they had a free passage of trade along the eastern shore, but also so that they could protect themselves against the supposedly backward people. In the century before Jesus walked the earth, the Greeks had handed the strip of land over to the Romans. And they had done so willingly and with a great sense of relief because uh, this strip of land had been an endless source of grief for them because the people of Israel were hostile and they kept pushing back and they kept believing in their one God and they stayed committed to their practices. And there were a whole bunch of uh, militaristic insurrectionists, we're gonna meet one of them today, who would push back against the empire of Greece, and so when Rome said, we'll take that section from you, the Greeks are like, you're welcome to it. Good luck, you can have the Decapolis, may it go well with you. 
And the Romans came in with a renewed energy and emboldened belittling and mockery and desecration of everything that the Jews held sacred. That's who lived in this region. As a result, it's a hotspot of conflict. It's a collision point, a very real collision point, friends, of clashing ideologies and worldviews of what will it take to have human flourishing. And for a Jew, this was enemy territory. And so those who had to travel through there or those who had to even live in that area to trade did so with a constant tension and a sense of vulnerability. And this is where Jesus takes his disciples on this part of his journey. Now, a couple of things to consider here. Firstly, this tells us a great deal about the nature and mission of our King Jesus. You see, you can tell a lot about a person's priorities by tracking the places that they go, right? A while ago, my wife and I um, were watching on Netflix and the irony of this being on Netflix was not lost on us, but this documentary called The Social Dilemma. I don't know if any of you have seen this, right? If you, if you still have a social media account, you haven't seen it. Um, uh, but if you've seen it, you've probably got rid of that because it's kind of this, this scary kind of bananas documentary that tells us what happens with all of our data and how we're being sold just confirmation bias all the time because it keeps us engaged and how they keep us addicted to our phones, right? There's like this mind-blowing thing that we were watching but one of the experts in the show said something that made me lean in a great deal. He had the crazy eyes. He had the very wild eyes. And he was looking directly at the screen. I was like, I don't know if I trust you, but you really believe this. So I'm listening uh, to what you're gonna say next. And he said something like, you can tell almost, he was like this, you can tell almost everything you need to know about someone by where they go. And what he was saying is your phone leaves digital breadcrumbs about you wherever you go. And that data goes somewhere. And what they do with that is you can tell almost everything you need to know about someone, about where, about where they go. You can tell what they love. You can tell what they fear. You can tell what they want. All of it, he said. This got me thinking. After I disabled the location services on all of my apps, um, I, I went to the maps of Jesus' journeys here in the scriptures. And the journeys of Jesus are, are breadcrumbs, ancient analog breadcrumbs, telling us a great deal that we need to know about him. You know what his journey into the region of the Decapolis tells us about him? He goes where no one else will go. Why? Because he loves people that no one else will love. And so we learn something about who he is and about how he operates and about what he was trying to accomplish. I love how our King Jesus just strolls into the middle of this conflict zone where you've got this back and forth of ideologies, who's gonna win? A literal collision point of competing kingdoms and he sits down on the mountain amongst all of these people and as he does so, he raises a flag of another kingdom. <laughs> he looks out at their kingdoms and goes, I guess cute, I'm from somewhere else. Now come follow me. Uh, secondly, what this tells us, just this background, is that this must have been incredibly uncomfortable for his disciples. Just think about them for a second. I don't have time to get into the detail of all of their lives, but, but we mustn't be too harsh with the 12 disciples. They're gonna make some mistakes today. We can learn from them. But this is another instance of them being thrust into areas that they had been taught their whole life were enemy territory. Let's just think of one of them. Just imagine Simon the Zealot for a moment. That's his name every time he's listed in the Bible. Simon, 
the zealot. Now, we don't know all that much about him except that he was a zealot, right? Because they put it right there in his name. And so that is his political allegiance. You see, being a zealot, was, a zealot wasn't a statement of personality. They weren't going like Simon the Hop guy or Simon the, uh, the, the Enneagram 8, right? Uh, they, they weren't saying that. They were saying Simon, the guy who's committed to the political ideologies of the zealots. It was a political ideology that he held so passionately that it's always attached to his name. I mean, can you imagine that in a modern day context, being so known for your politics that every time you get introduced to someone, you're introduced by your political allegiance, right? This is Larry, the libertarian. And people are like, okay, hi, Larry. And he's like, the libertarian. Yes, the libertarian, that's in your name. And you have to say it every time. You see, Simon belonged to a political activist groups a group known as the Zealots, who took an oath to overthrow all Roman control <laughs> and influence of society regardless of the cost. They were willing to die for the cause. Many of them were violent and there was even a sect that believed that God wouldn't hold them guilty for the death of a Roman because they believed that they were doing God's work. Simon wasn't just a passive aggressive yard sign sort of political you know, advocate and activist. He was an all in radical and the enemy of everything he stood for in terms of promoting and defending a way of life for his beloved Israel lived in vast numbers in the area of the Decapolis and this is where Jesus took him. Can you imagine this poor dude? He's like, what are we doing here? Maybe this is the time when Jesus lets me just let loose on these fools, right? And I can, I can accomplish my goal as a zealot. It must have been overwhelming. It must have been at times frustrating and confusing and altogether exhilarating to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. Friends, it still is. Because he just won't let us settle in our camps. He just, he just won't let us do it. Okay, we needed that background. Now we can crack on. At a pace, verse 30, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and what did they do? They glorified the God of Israel. Gosh, there's so much beauty in that scene when you see it in its context, right? Not only is Jesus in a territory where many of the people were viewed as outside of the covenant promises of Israel, but the crowd that he gathers in that place is not the elite, not the successful, not the strong, not the influential. In a strict honor and shame-based culture where strength was honored and weakness was shamed, he draws the weakest of the weak to himself, the lame. The blind, the crippled, the mute, the poor, the beggars, the outcasts, the forgotten ones. And what does he do? He reaches out and touches them and heals them. And the result, don't miss it, is a key point in redemptive history in your Bibles. Matthew tells us that they glorified the God of Israel. Now, this is big. Matthew is a Jewish scribe writing to a Jewish audience. And so the fact that he adds the God of Israel shows that this is a Gentile response of worship of the one true God. Now this had always been promised. Little Jewish kids have been brought up to know this. Look for these signs. Here's when you know that the Messiah is here. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the mute will sing, and... Gentiles will be added into the family of 
promise. They knew this. And now it's happening before their eyes. But we know from how most of how Israel responds to Jesus that none of them expected it to be in this form. They wanted a king by the world's standards of a king. They wanted a strong man who would dominate the surrounding peoples in power and bring them to faith through empire and dominion and worldly strength and colony and push back, right? But here comes Jesus getting praises from Gentiles by sitting on a hillside and serving the lowest members of a society they hated. They had no category for this kind of leadership. This is kingdom leadership. Look what he says to them, verse 32. This is so moving and so beautiful. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on this crowd. Remember who's in the crowd. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. This is a bit of an indictment on the disciples at this moment because they looking around at this bunch probably thinking, I did not sign up for this. Can I go back to fishing? tax collecting, killing Romans. Like, can I go back to some of that? Because I did not, this is crazy. And Jesus calls them together. He goes, guys, I'm feeling something for these people. And Simon's like, I'm feeling something too. I'm, I, I got some feelings, Jesus, we need to talk about, right? But, but you go first, because you're the son of God. Well, what are, what are your feelings? And he says, I have compassion on these people. The Greek word for that literally suggests that he has a pain in his gut as he looks on a crowd of Gentiles, he is moved by their needs. It troubles him in the depths of his being. And their needs, make no mistake, are very practical and tangible. And Jesus is moved by this. It teaches us so much about our King Jesus. Perhaps most clearly and simply, it teaches us that Jesus cares deeply about all sorts of people. He cares about the needs of all sorts of people. You see, Matthew, led by the Holy Spirit, uses such a fascinating setup link between the feeding of the 5,000 and this instance here, which is the feeding of the 4,000. In both cases, in Matthew 14 and here in Matthew 15, it says that Jesus has compassion on the crowd. But here's the key. The crowd is totally different, but Jesus isn't. Jesus isn't. He cared for the covenant people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And here he cares for the people in the region of the Decapolis. He cared for the needs of people who were desperate for sovereignty and liberation and who longed for a removal of the foreign influence that they saw as destroying their culture and flourishing. And he cared for the needs of the people who lived on the opposite end of that spectrum. The very ones they were trying to be liberated from, Jesus has compassion on them as well. Can you imagine being his disciple? It's still pretty wild. If you do it right, if you do it right, this is what he's gonna set us up with all the time. See, because Jesus cares deeply about all sorts of people. He doesn't categorize like we do. He doesn't segregate like we do. Now, now make no mistake, Jesus does in the scripture see different groups of people. He separates them out, sheep and goats, believers, unbelievers, those who will come to him and those who will not 
come to him. Those are the categories and the lines that he draws and then he doesn't draw any others. We draw us and them lines in very different places from where King Jesus draws those lines. This is shown so clearly in one of the key differences in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Listen to this, this is, this is astonishing. It's subtle in the text, but it reveals much of our hearts if we're ready for it, right? In the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples came to Jesus to make them aware of the needs of the people who had been with him for less than a day. It was late afternoon and the disciples are like, these folk, these are my people, and they're getting hangry, right? We've got to go to Jesus and we've got to move him to compassion, they think, so that he'll take care of the needs of these people um, because these are my people and look at them, they have a need. In this story, they've been three days and Jesus has to call the disciples to him. Why? They haven't said a thing. Why? They don't seem to be concerned about the needs of people who are not like them. We've got hungry folk in front of them and they live with a bread maker. And it doesn't cross their minds to go forward with compassion and say, Lord, could you meet the needs of some of these people? They were seemingly not as moved by the plights of people who were not like them. People they had learned to not care for, people they thought were a direct threat to their flourishing, don't get their compassion. But Jesus cares deeply about all sorts of people, okay? So then, so what? Well, let's pick it up in verse 33. The disciples said to him, where are we gonna get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Does that seem hilarious to any of you if you know that Jesus fed 5,000 people a chapter ago, <laughs> that they would go like, oh, yeah, if only we knew someone who could make bread. Um, they, they're literally traveling with the great bread maker of the universe. It's gonna get even more alarming in the sermon next week where they're gonna be hungry for bread and they're gonna go, if only we had bread. And Jesus is gonna be like, guys, seriously, don't you remember, right? But they're like, oh, I wish there's something we could do but there's nothing we can do. They wanna limit their exposure. They wanna limit their liability. They wanna limit their compassion, right? Oh, if only we could help, right? But they're not interested in getting involved. Now, before we judge them, friends, listen, we are in so many ways like the first disciples. We don't remember the miraculous provision of our Lord. And so we go from frantic need to frantic need to frantic need to frantic need without ever stopping to remember like, oh yeah, he met this need last time and he met this need the time before and he met this need the time before. He'll do it again. He'll do it again. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? I might've added an inflection there, but I imagine Jesus is like, my God goodness gracious me. How many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. I love this. Directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. A couple of beautiful things here. Firstly, I love how Jesus gets everyone to sit down for grace such a beautiful moment and people must have been like, well, this is awkward. <laughs> we don't have anything to eat. <laughs> Why are we saying grace, right? But Jesus makes everyone sit down and he thanks the Father. Dr. Tony Evans points out that Jesus is beautifully modeling what it is like for us to give thanks for and in the midst of our insufficiency. 
He gives thanks in the midst of what seems like lack. Because when, when we don't have what we need, we should be thankful for the little we do have. And in that thankfulness, we get to watch God provide in a way that only he can provide, right? But we must stop and give thanks. Secondly, look at how marvelously patient and kind Jesus is with the disciples. And look how he includes his disciples and in so doing teaches them to be more like him. See, Jesus could have made this miracle happen in any way, shape or form. But how does he do it? through the hands of the disciples. He could have just gone Kazan and a pile of food, right? Now everyone line up, buffet style, it's before COVID, you all line up here, don't worry about it, and come and just help yourself. But what does he do? He sends the disciples out and they take little bit by little. And they take a little, they hand it out, and they go, huh, interesting, that was enough. And they come back and there's more. And they hand it out and they come back and there's more. And they hand it out and they come back and there's more. There's something about the obedience of the disciples that unleashes the miraculous power of heaven so that they get to participate in Jesus' mercy and in his compassion and in his provision, but they had to obey. They had to go and take the little bit that he gave them and then he provides the supernatural multiplication through his own power. It's in the service of obedient disciples that God does his marvelous, miraculous work. This must have been a stark and powerful object lesson for them. He wanted his previously unconcerned disciples to be the vehicle through which these people's needs were met. And so friends, the lesson today isn't just that Jesus cares deeply about all sorts of people. The lesson is also Jesus calls his disciples to care about all sorts of people. We are to be like him and we are to obey him and we are to be moved by compassion and then watch his miraculous power go with us. He sends this dazed and confused group of wonderful nobodies who themselves have such divergent views on the world and what will make it better and he sends them out with his miraculous provision even though it looks pitiable in their hands at the time and says, go, serve people who are nothing like you have compassion on them, meet their needs, then come back to me and get more of what I have. And then do it again. This, this is the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Imagine, imagine if we committed to living a life like this. Imagine the power of this in an era of us versus them. I cannot help but think that God is once again purifying his church and once again reminding us that our hope is not set in earthly systems of power and comfort doesn't rest in belonging to any one particular man-made group. Imagine a church, and I know people are gonna email me, I know, and I welcome it. Please, let's engage, let's talk. I love those emails. But you tell me, oh, Ross, you're not from here, so you're naive about American politics. I know I'm wonderfully naive, it's why I'm so joyful. Right, And so I welcome those conversations. But imagine, just dream with me here for a second. Imagine a church who regardless of who sits in the White House in January, and I know it's important. Let me add all the caveats. It's important. But just dream with me. Imagine a church that simply goes before the Lord again and again and says, Lord, send us out with your miraculous provision to those I would never ordinarily go out to so that I can serve them with compassion and let's see what you do for the kingdom of God. Imagine that was our posture. Instead of clambering 
for more power. Instead of cutting down, slaying our enemies, we said, who can we serve with the miraculous provision that God has given us? Look at the results and then I'll close. They all ate and were satisfied. Oh, they couldn't take in another bit. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. They were satisfied. There were leftovers. Our friends, remember the Canaanite woman last week? She simply wanted crumbs and Jesus goes, I see your crumbs. I raise you enough so that there's seven baskets left over. That's how I provide. That's what my grace is like. Now this, of course, isn't just a story about a meal. It's also a powerful word picture of God's salvation. In the feeding of the 5,000, there's 12 baskets left over showing God's provision of grace and salvation and mercy is enough for the 12 tribes of Israel. In this story, there's seven baskets left over. That, that culture saw seven as the number of perfection showing that he provided perfectly for all of their needs through the grace that he was giving to them. Jesus is showing them and us, listen, that he is enough that his body would be broken like bread for us all and that all of us, no matter how far we may appear to be from the sorts of people that God would care for, may eat and enjoy and be welcomed into a new family where people nothing like each other can again feast on grace together. That is the church. Friends, we were the blind and the deaf and the lame and the mute and the sick, the Gentiles who lived in the cities of the Decapolis and our King Jesus came and sat with us, had compassion on us, miraculously provided for us and now graciously invites us to be his people. People who take the little pitiable bit that they have with thanksgiving and then who boldly go where others won't go equipped with the multiplying miraculous power of God's grace to serve people that others do not love with compassion. People who reach out across neighborhoods, people who move across continents with the good news of the gospel, people who reach hands of fellowship across man-made aisles people who desperately want to share with our former enemies about the bread of life who gives us all that we could ever need. I'll gladly be naive for that kind of kingdom, for that kind of people. Lift your eyes, church. Hey? Jesus is king. His provision is enough. Being his people is our greatest identifier our strongest unifier, and by far, by far, the most exciting adventure in the whole world. The best thing you could do with your life is follow him where he sends you. Go where he tells you to. Take what he gives you. Share with those who are unlike you and watch him do his miraculous work of compassion. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is true Thank you that it is useful today to teach us and to train us and to rebuke us and to encourage us. 
and to mold us and shape us into greater Christ-likeness, make us more like your son Jesus today. Oh Lord, I pray for a revival of this sort of love amongst your disciples, a compassion, an unction, a burning in our guts to serve the needs of people not like us. Why? Because we wanna be like our king. And we wanna see people right across the world praise this God of Israel, this Jesus Christ, this King of Kings. Lord, we're gonna need your Holy Spirit to combat our flesh. Forgive us for the us and them categories that we have that you don't give us. Help us to repent of those. And help us, Lord, even though we may feel convicted about what might be best for human flourishing in our land, to be people who seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And I pray that as we come to you with hands open and say, I'll take what you give and I'll give it to people who are nothing like me, pray that you do something that none of us could predict, a miracle. I pray that the bread of life gets poured out freely and lavishly to all sorts of people, to all sorts of people, so that they might be able to feel satisfied in your provision. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.